At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach to health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And we're excited because it's been a while since we've done one of these sort of AMA podcasts. So we pulled some questions from the YouTube comments, Instagram DMs, and some of the podcasts that we've been on. And we're going to go through some of those today. So maybe we start with uh, we get a lot of questions about hormones, so you'll probably see the same themes pop up throughout the conversation, but mm -hmm. I think this is a good one to start with. So someone says, um, is there a way to mimic hormone replacement therapy with other supplements? Um, and it, it sounds like they said that hormone replacement therapy is not being offered by doctors in their case. This is a great question. Um, when it comes to comparing supplements to hormone replacement therapy, um, you are going to think about a couple things. One, uh, which hormone replacement therapy? Is this just DHEA and pregnenolone, which are also supplements? In that case, prescribed DHEA and prescribed pregnenolone are going to be, uh, assuming quality is good, roughly equitable. If your question is regarding like a postmenopausal HRT in a female or TRT in a male where it's steady state level of testosterone, then supplements will not mimic the effects so your benefits and detriments are completely different however they can be used to control symptoms in some cases yeah so it depends on the context of the question and the reason that perhaps this is being offered is because there are contraindications like a very high predisposition to breast cancer someone who's already had breast cancer in a woman um, those would certainly be good reasons to not add in estrogen as hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a pretty broad question and the answer is it depends. Um, moving on to our next question, you know, we commonly see stated the, you know, five to 10 years after menopause or immediately after menopause or in perimenopause is the time to start and consider hormone replacement therapy. But if someone is at the very edge of that, in this case, I think they said eight years, if someone's at the edge of that, then, you know, they're saying there's kind of this blanket statement of, okay, this person is at increased risk for things like blood clots and strokes, but um, obviously not everybody goes through menopause at the same age or in the same health. So it sounds like there's some guidelines here and they're asking about how you individualize that to the patient. I'll respond to this question with another question. When is it too late to start putting money into your retirement account or your IRA? Never. It's never too late and it's never too too late to consider 
some form of hormone replacement therapy. That's kind of getting some deja vu from the last question. Because what is an hormone replacement therapy? Is it, um, is it just estrogen and progesterone? Is it an androgen? Is that included? Is it things like DHEA or pregnenolone? I consider all the above hormone replacement. So it's never too late to consider some form of HRT. Yeah, and I think this sort of guideline goes back to, again, the, the early 2000s and the Women's Health Initiative. So looking at that like five to 10 years, that's based on CEE and medroxyprogesterone. Mm -hmm. So very few people are prescribing those medications today. So that same guideline, I mean, you can't necessarily extrapolate that 100% to like a transdermal low dose of estradiol. Mm -hmm. You certainly can't extrapolate it to vaginal estrogen, which I'll see you know, sometimes pulled out if someone you know, has had a stroke, even though we know the systemic exposure to that is exceedingly low. Yeah. So there's sort of this you know, impact of looking at medications that were prescribed for a, or different medications that were prescribed for the same condition being applied to newer and better medications. Mm -hmm. So you let look at- Let alone considering androgens. Yeah, yeah, that, that should certainly be a consideration as well. And if you look at like treating diabetes, uh, I don't know if I've made this analogy before, but if we just looked at um, medications in the sulfonorrhea class, like gliburide, then we would see that, well, we certainly don't want to replace or reduce the A1C because look at all the harm it causes. We have more cardiovascular events, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't stop treating diabetes because one type of medication caused harm. Yeah, There's newer and, and better ways to go about doing that. And that's the beautiful thing about medicine is that you get newer and better treatments mm -hmm. and you can really individualize it to what is going to be a good fit for that patient. That being said, um, any good financial advisor will tell you the earlier you donate to your retirement account, the better. And when you just look at the benefits of HRT, when you are menopausal or when you're hypogonadal, I suppose, the earlier you consider that, the better as well. Yeah, and we're big, we're big proponents of people thinking about this prior to even entering perimenopause or menopause, because then you kind of have your team of care providers in place before you're being reactive because you're having symptoms and you're trying to find treatment. All right, so this is a good question. Uh, someone is asking, um, in layman's terms, what is the difference between adrenaline and cortisol? Because these are both frequently referred to as stress hormones. Mm -hmm. Great question, they are both stress hormones. Cortisol is one of the main glucocorticoids along with cortisone that um, is made adrenally. ACTH stimulates the secretion of it. But, um, and it has binding globulins as well. We love to talk about binding globulins, but it is a sterol-based hormone. So things like vitamin D, estrogen, testosterone, DHT, cortisol, they're all cholesterol-based hormones. They have a sterol backbone. And it binds to glucocorticoid receptors. Um, it has many effects throughout the body, but it is also considered a stress hormone. Uh, adrenaline is the same thing as epinephrine. Noradrenaline is norepinephrine. And it is technically a hormone, but um, it is uh, tyrosine-based. So it is an amino acid-based hormone. And um, that is more active with things like your heart rate. It interacts with the nervous system a lot. Um, it binds to, for example, uh, alpha and beta receptors throughout the system. So um, they are both stress hormones, but they are extremely different. Yeah, I think that's a good high level overview. And 
these things move in conjunction with one another. So it'd be quite hard for someone to be a, an adrenaline junkie without yeah. also being a cortisol junkie, you know, cause you're going to see the, that response. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's actually the cortisol or at least cortisol exogenously can drive the production of the adrenaline. Yep. It's not uncommon when someone is on a steroid dose pack for whatever reason that they have an elevated heart rate, mm-hmm. you know, there are you know, other effects, blood pressure is going to go up. Um, they feel more stressed out. Sometimes there's trouble with sleep. Uh, and that's because it's kind of stimulating the, the catecholamine release, the adrenaline, like we just spoke about. Mm-hmm. I love talking about cortisol and adrenaline in humans and dogs and how those two things interact, depending on the, the I guess, uh, human and their canine. And it's probably way down my Instagram feed at this point. And we do need a podcast just on human-canine interaction in and of itself. But it's very interesting when you look at studies of um, wolves and like wild wolf packs. You have the alpha wolf that has uh, perhaps lower testosterone, but higher cortisol. And then when you look at domesticated dogs doing competitions, um, if you're, uh, the testosterone of the owner also affects the cortisol of the dog. The cortisol increases. So you think that would mean if your testosterone is higher as an owner of a canine that you stress your dog out. But maybe you're actually just moving your dog up the pecking order. Yeah, they say that, you know, dogs can sense things about their owners. So the high testosterone phenotype, it's almost as if that dog is going to be emulating a sort of alpha of the wolf pack Mm -hmm. phenotype, Mm -hmm. just sort of modeling the owner's behavior. Yes. And yes, that study did account for the confounder of the higher testosterone owners being mean to their dog. So that was not a confounder. So um, anyway, thought that would be a fun rabbit trail. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, here we have someone asking about early menopause. So there's you know a lot of women that go into either surgical menopause or premature ovarian insufficiency. So basically their question is, you know, I've been on HRT for a number of years now. Um, what should I think about this? So I suppose we could talk about what happens when women undergo early menopause and do not have HRT versus women who uh, undergo early menopause, all things equal, and then they do have the HRT. First thing of concern, if you go through early menopause, which is now called POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, um, let's say you go through this at age 32 or 33, if you do not start HRT, you have significantly higher risk of cardiovascular disease mostly secondary to depletion in estrogen. So that's the first thing to think about. Um, There are a lot of other outcomes that you can look at, for example, rates of neurodegenerative disease and cognitive impairment of age, rates of osteoporosis and osteopenia, even sarcopenia, um, symptoms um, like changes in libido or sexual health. Um, But that is kind of the primary benefit when you're going back to that scale of risk um, versus detriment. So for many people that have POI, the benefit far outweighs the risk. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to look at it. And it really kind of amplifies just what you see from menopause because it's over uh, a longer time period. So it's like going back to the mm-hmm. saving for retirement analogy, you have more time for the negative health effects in this case of being hormone deprived to sort of compound on each other. So I think the the big three you mentioned there, you know, cognitive function, cardiac health, bone density. And there's things like your metabolic health, um, the accumulation of visceral fat tissue, insulin sensitivity. And, you know, looking at the outcome data of these patients, ones that have been treated versus haven't, that there is a higher incidence of cognitive impairment and dementias in the ones that were not treated with HRT. 
And this isn't necessarily even, you know, gold standard, like HRT, like designing an individualized perfect regimen for that patient. It's just, you know, showing that replacing that estrogen has that sort of a, a beneficial effect. Because a lot of times there is no progesterone replacement. If you know, women don't have a uterus, um, like surgical menopause, for example, a lot of times they'll say, well, you don't need progesterone then. And, you know, I think that's perhaps a conversation for another podcast, but yeah. you know, there's just a lot of variables to look at there. And I think this kind of gets blown out of proportion whenever people talk about the benefits of HRT that are very pro-HRT. They tend to extrapolate things from POI studies and say, well, look, mm -hmm. you can prevent dementia, but it's a little bit of a stretch to say that HRT is going to prevent dementia for a woman who's, you know, 51 who just went through menopause. Mm -hmm. Certainly protective of cognitive function, protective of brain function, maybe appropriate terms to use, mm -hmm. but don't want to be misleading to people. Yes, it's another notch in the belt for individualized medicine, really. Um, even not going through categories like POI, you take two patients, one has menopause at 46, one has menopause at 50, 56. And at 56, that individual has an expected health span given their like comorbidities and their genetics to 80. And the 46-year-old has an expected health span to 100, maybe even above 100. They have um, a lot of longevity in the family and no comor comorbidities then um, even without uh, POI on the table, then the individual that is 46, it would be uh, a potentially higher benefit to consider HRT. Yeah, that makes sense because there's more, you know, potential years of life lost or years of quality of life lost. Mm -hmm. um, it, a great graph on this is looking at the CDC's website on diabetes and how that affects people's long-term health outcomes. If people want to see and kind of put that on a timeline just for a visual, uh, visualization. Mm -hmm. It's an investment in your health. Um, it's the retirement account of your brain and your bones and your cardiovascular system. It is certainly not without risks. So paradoxically, a lot of individuals that say, I'm very healthy, I've been healthy my entire life. Um, I don't have a lot, uh, you know, I, a lot of things, a lot of pathologies don't run in the family and a lot of my ancestors live until their 90s. They very well may be the best candidates for HRT, you're looking at that long health span. Yeah, and this is where I sort of I get into the Twitter space and I see people like, why would you check a PSA on someone who's 70 years old? It's like, well, if that person has potentially a 100 year lifespan, yes. then that might be a reasonable discussion to have. Mm -hmm. And as we move on into the future and people do start living longer and longer, I think we'll sort of look back on and think, wow, like, I mean, we used to think that at 70, like, why are we even screening your health anymore? You've got, you know, X number of years left. Yeah. Um, the health span discussion is, again, a topic for another podcast, but it's almost like the epigenetic age clocks aren't perfectly good because, you know, if your epigenetic age is 30, that doesn't mean you're for sure going to live at least 60 more years. Um, but obviously, chronologic age that is also not perfect. It's almost like somebody needs to look at a biobank and then maybe come up with some sort of better health score. If only. Or maybe we're just upset because we don't have the world record for reversing age. I suppose so. Uh, but the PSA is a segue into our next question, which is, um, is there any information on whether or not Tonkat Ali will affect PSA for routine labs? Yeah, so it certainly has the potential to. Um, Tonkat can increase, of course, testosterone. DHT, estradiol. That being said, it's probably not 
a clinically significant increase in PSA. And by that, I mean, you know, let's say your PSA is 3.0 for a 65 year old. If Tomcat increases it to 3.2, that's probably not gonna push you over the barrier of things like MRI or no MRI, biopsy or no biopsy, et cetera. Yeah, I would be very surprised if it increased PSA in a younger individual. But if you had, like you said, someone who is 65, perhaps, and they are a hyper responder to Tomcat Ali, they go and you know, double their testosterone levels from something like 200 to 400 nanogram per deciliter, mm -hmm. then I think that could increase PSA slightly. If you're looking at some of the potential saturation and the fact that they may have BPH, that's really going to convert a lot of that testosterone into DHT compared to like a 20-year-old's prostate. Mm -hmm. I'd say it's plausible, but I don't think, like you said, it's not going to, um, in the hands of a competent you know, provider, I don't think they're going to do anything invasive or overreact to that sort of blip on the radar. Here's a quick point related to that question. If you are taking dutasteride or finasteride, especially if your doctor or urologist does not know about it, that will precipitously decrease PSA, dose-dependent as well. So let's say you have an individual whose PSA is 4.0. They start, uh, let's say they start uh, ProScar, five megs of finasteride a day, maybe partly for their hair. Um, they don't mention it to their urologist and they come back and their PSA goes from 5.0 to 5.2. That is a huge red flag for prostate cancer because that likely, um, you would expect a PSA to go from 4.0 to 2.0. So if that individual had not started finasteride, it could have been 8.0. And if they could miss that diagnosis by an entire year. So that's something very important to remember. Yeah, talking about the PSA velocity, and it's, that's why it's important to you know, present as best as you can what medications you're taking, what supplements you're taking, giving as much data as possible, because you never know when something that you think, oh, well, this is insignificant, I'm just taking this for my hair, um, could actually have a clinically important uh, use just for having the provider with that data. So I have to tell my doctor what I get for my telemedicine clinic. It would seem so. Ah, bummer. All right. And someone here says uh, they're talking about uh, taking something to reduce DHT. So they said if we're inhibiting DHT and then raise the testosterone, won't that just create more DHT to be dealt with? I suppose it... I, I believe the question is probably regarding 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. There are anti-androgens. So there's androgen receptor antagonists. Um, and that's kind of a whole other rabbit hole. But in general, there's not many individuals taking these androgen receptor antagonists. Um, and if there is, a lot of times they have like metastatic prostate cancer or whatnot. It's palliative. But um, by inhibiting 5-alpha reductase, then you are going to decrease the conversion of testosterone to DHT. So the increased testosterone, for example, um, if you're on finasteride, a lot of times your testosterone will go up by 10%. Um, I guess they also may admit if you also simultaneously raise your testosterone levels like TRT, I'm not Perhaps. sure if they mean to 10%. So if you start TRT, then it certainly will provide more substrate to be 5-alpha reduced. And if you do that, like let's say they're on injectable TRT, that's going to lower your SHBG and the change in SHBG will make total DHT look lower, but free DHT, which I think we're one of the few clinics that actually checks free DHT, will be significantly higher even if you start finasteride. So if you take, let's say an average person 
hypogonadal individual, 50 years old, androgenic alopecia, wants to start finasteride, starts one MIG, simultaneously starts TRT. Yes, their free DHT will likely be higher starting both of those two things at the same time. Yeah, I, I suppose you could create a, a case study like that where you sort of tread water with your DHT because you're changing a lot of variables around it. And then you don't tell your provider about any of these things and the DHT stays the same. Yep. All that being said, <laughs> this is mostly an esoteric question because as we've said many times, there is nothing special about DHT except that it binds the same androgen receptor more strongly. So again, back to the analogy of the door, some people's door is a metal door, some people's door is a hollow core, some people in between. If you're, uh, and that's just a lot about your CAG repeats, we've done many podcasts in the past about this. So the DHT would be strongly pushing on the door. So even with zero DHT, um, for most individuals, um, a lot of testosterone is more than enough to open that door in all the various tissues. So in this analogy, the, the finasteride is the big bad wolf, and it depends on what your house is made of, whether he's going to be able to blow it down. Yes. It's a great analogy. Yeah, but I, I think in this case study we concocted the TRT plus finasteride, I think the estradiol to DHT ratio would potentially improve there. So yeah. you may still get the you know, hair results that this person was after. Mm -hmm. um, and just with something like finasteride or dutasteride, there's a, a wide variation of how much that may increase someone's testosterone. Mm -hmm. That could be 5%. It could be as high as 20% looking at some studies. Yep. So it's the testosterone booster that you didn't know about. Yeah. All right. And then what do you think about screening for factor five and other genetic tests at birth? Are there any genetic tests we screen for at birth? Yeah, there certainly <laughs> is. So uh, actually kind of depending on the state, um, there's state specific screens. We used to call these PKUs because the screen for, for phenylketonuria was the start, the, like the first one. And then there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and those are usually done 24 hours after birth. So, um, yep, big fan of those tests. Um, Past that, it's individualized. So uh, factor V laden is um, the most common genetic coagulopathy in Caucasians. Um, I th believe it's named after Leyden, a town in Belgium. But anyway, um, I am a fan of screening in this in many individuals that may be at increased or at re increased risk of VTE, which is venous thromboembolism, um, blood clot, for example, in the leg or the lung. And um, in these individuals, other things that you look at is how much uh, estrogen signaling is there because that's related to blood clot risk as well. Yeah. And I think the, the question here is like, if you just build a laundry list of, <coughs> if you just build a laundry list of genetic tests to screen for, the question that the public health entities are going to look at is, does the cost of this justify the benefit? And when you have things like this that have, you know, I guess it's not a terribly low prevalence. It's something like you know, five to ten percent for a uh, factor five heterozygote in the population. How many of those people are actually going to go on, or are going to go on like in their early lives to have um, something like a blood clot, or does that blood clot cause a problem? So, you know, it is individualized at this point. I don't think that that will be added in in the near future. Just speculating, but these tests are certainly available for people who want to see if they have a risk. Um, maybe someone who's considering HRT and that would something that would increase estrogen like you spoke of. Definitely. 
All right. Um, here's a follow-up from our protein podcast. What type of plant protein does Gillette eat toward the end of the day? Kind of depends. Um, not one specific type. In the in the past, I've gotten a lot of protein from my protein, but I don't endorse them in any way. At one time, I read a, an analytical chemist's post. Um, and this was not professionally done or a study, and it appeared that that was one of the best quality proteins per the cost. However, I just looked on their website after I got this question and they've increased the price of all of their proteins by at least double of what I remember um, paying for it when I like stockpiled for Black Friday or whatnot. So um, yeah, no specific recommendation for plant protein, but mixes of various plant proteins is what you want to go with, not just one if possible. For example, like a vegan protein, I think is pretty good. Redcon might have one. I don't think our friend Derek has one yet. Um, but this is probably in relation to the question regarding mixing collagen with plant protein. When you mix the two together, it gives a better complement of uh, amino acids. And then also uh, many plant proteins are relatively slow digesting, but do not activate mTOR too much. So I think that was the context. Yeah. And I like the combo there of the collagen with the plant-based protein because you know collagen, we know that the glycine content is important for bone mineral density. And there is an association with the heavier plant-based diet and then people having less bone density over time. So mm. I think that's a very nice synergy for someone who is on a plant-based mm. diet. Make sure they're getting plenty of glycine mm. in their amino acid profile. Yep. Speaking of that, I think our friend Simon Hill does have, I don't know if he has his own plant-based protein or is affiliated, but I have had a few patients on that that really enjoyed it. Interesting. Great yep. info for people. All right. Uh, here's an interesting question. Uh, patient notes that I lose between one to two pounds while I sleep. Uh, I weigh myself before and after bed and I notice that. So we'll leave the question at that. But what could be causing this? Yeah. So um, it, when you sleep, there's a lot of things that happen, but you still have cellular respiration. So you're still going like undergoing energy processes and breathing off CO2. So uh, basically, when uh, this is just uh, actually happening during the day and during the night, it's uh, just the, the normal cellular respiration process. Yeah, and I think like, if someone particularly notices heavy nighttime sweating, which you know, may lead to a little bit more weight loss, um, that can be a good indicator to like, hey, go to your care provider, your doctor, and figure out you know, what is causing this. And sleep apnea is something that can do that. You yep. see much more That's nighttime true. sweating and sleep apnea because you have these big spikes in your heart rate when you're not getting very much oxygen. So that could prompt someone to get a diagnosis that they need. Mm -hmm. Of note, I also sweat more at night when I take L-carnitine. So, um, which should allow you to sleep cooler. So you shouldn't just keep sweating. You should be able to sleep cooler. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That makes sense. <coughs> All right. And someone here is asking about um, damage in their connective tissue of their knee. So they lost a portion of their cartilage and they're asking, you know, basically, what should I do? Should I use a knee brace? What can I do to improve my cartilage? And I guess improve their quality of life and ability to exercise as a result. Mm-hmm. With this, you would basically make sure that there's nothing occurring that is holding you back. So like an estrogen deficient state is the individual like unnecessarily on an aromatase inhibitor. Um, I, I think we talked about cartilage or patellar tendon collagen after collagen supplementation. So that is certainly something to consider. Look at like depending on age, is there another growth factors? Um, is there, uh, does there need to be remodeling of this cartilage? Consider PRP, consider uh, growth agonist peptides, consider angiogenic peptides if they're a candidate. So there's a lot of different things to, to look at, but like anything else, lifestyle interventions like diet and especially exercise and um, strengthening that area, um, not just the muscle, but the tendon is what you want to look at first. Yeah. And I think one of the great points that you've made about this in the past with patients is they have to remove the aggravating cause or it may heal up, but then they're going to end up re-injuring themselves. So mm -hmm. someone has poor movement patterns or is doing a resistance training with improper form, they may find themselves right back at square one. Mm -hmm. What is your take on saw palmetto? Yeah, and I think we've talked about this one before too, but uh, maybe not for a bit. But saw palmetto is kind of taken as like an, a natural 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. The issue with it is kind of the same issue with curcumin in that it has many different particles, which are lipid-based, by the way, which inhibit 5-alpha reductase slightly differently. So it is hard to take that in isolation and study it. Um, a lot of times they do uh, like cell studies in vitro and drop the different particles on cell lines and see how much 5-alpha reductase is expressed. So that's decent, but uh, it's it does have side effects. It is potentially helpful in cases of BPH, but probably not clinically applicable in other cases. That being said, um, in individuals who are not overly sensitive to androgens, it can be reasonable to add in 
as a, a topical hair loss product. It's relatively small particles. They probably are absorbed systemically to some degree. So it's, um, it, I don't know if it's an alternative to topical finasteride or dutasteride, but it can certainly be absorbed. It's not complete without side effects, but it can be a reasonable addition for some people that know that they can tolerate it. So it's one of those categories you're thinking about, not just therapeutic window, but risk and benefit, pretty small benefit. And for most people, probably pretty small risk as well. Yeah, and when we talk about these different components of the plant and these different you know, parts of the plant that they think are biologically active, it almost sounds like they're trying to, it, it sounds more and more like a medication the more you think about it, because yeah. they want to get a molecule that behaves a certain way that plays nicely or it has the intended effect. So that's where the line between like what's a supplement and what's a medication begins to get even more blurry. Yeah, I would rather just um, look at medications like finasteride and dutasteride and their many benefits and also their risks rather than uh, salt palmetto. And this one is a hair loss AMA question. Someone says, what is the youngest age that you would recommend someone start finasteride? For example, waiting until 25 when brain development may be complete. Yeah, so some individuals with delayed puberty, um, if you haven't gone through puberty at 20, um, which does happen, I think Derek made a video on that too, mm -hmm. but uh, I would certainly wait. I would not start finasteride through puberty. If um, you had your growth spurt at 18, then I'd probably wait till at least 22, if not older, because you're still going to have secondary sexual uh, characteristic development. Um, so several years after like the finalization of your secondary sexual characteristic development, that's like penile growth, testicular growth, even um, not as important for beard growth. Um, I guess androgenic alopecia progression would, um, if it's progressing, then you're probably mostly done with secondary sexual characteristic development, voice development even. Um, but yeah, if you went through puberty and you're six, five, when you were 13, then maybe you could start with an asteroid when you're 19, mm -hmm. you know, every case is different. That's just a rule of thumb. Yeah. And I think if you're a person who is, let's say you're 20 years old and you're predisposed to male pattern baldness, but you don't want to do anything until 25, um, I think that's a reasonable approach. Yep. And there are other things you can do in the meantime, you know, something like a minoxidil and we know it for the average person is gonna buy them at least five years of time of having more hair in five years than they do today. So you don't necessarily have to intervene with systemic hormones, especially if you're at a critical development period and you don't want to take that risk. Yeah, and it depends on your Norwood scores too. So like we talked about in the hair loss podcast, depending on what Norwood you start at, uh, for example, one to three, the outcome data over studied over 10 years looks quite good. Um, whereas if you're progressing pretty quickly, that's a conversation you want to be having with your doctor. Absolutely. Uh, now people are asking, do we have any opinion on mesotherapy um, added to a treatment stack with dutasteride, some other form of DHT suppression, or even stem cells in the scalp? Yeah, I think we kind of talked about this. Uh, it was like the theoretical maximum hair loss stack. It involved zeomin mesotherapy, it involved uh, plus or minus PRP if you want to just like a huge jump start. Um, it involved dutasteride as well, whether oral or topical. Um, and then minoxidil, oral minoxidil. Um, I think they also asked about other forms of DHT suppression. Um, 
If you're on dutasteride, I suppose you could make a case that um, if you're extremely androgen sensitive and you were really concerned specifically about the type 2 5-alpha reductase, but I guess you weren't pushing your dutasteride dose for some reason, I guess you could add in other um, forms of DHT suppression. But I would consider like topical caffeine, topical ketoconazole, um, and the zeolmin enough as like anti-androgens. There are a lot of molecules in phase two and phase three FDA clinical trials, um, but uh, I probably wouldn't add those in yet unless you're one of the individuals in the clinical trial. I think that's very solid advice. And as you, you say add, that about anything, <laughs> as you add in more and more of these things after you have kind of your your foundation in this case, like a primarily topical, non-systemic hormone foundation, mm -hmm. then your rate of return for each additional intervention is going to be you know slightly less. Of course, throw microneedling in there because that's yes, a, a great that's one right. that doesn't affect systemic sex hormones. Um, someone here asks, can you, I guess, perhaps give an example of how you look at evaluation and treatment of someone with post-finasteride syndrome? Get yeah. A lot of questions like this. A lot of questions. Um, and we do have a lot of patients with PFS. Um, and I think we've talked about it, or at least talked about finasteride and dutasteride at length. Um, a lot of it's an individualized approach. I think people know I use kind of like an X and a Y axis. So with PCOS, you have an X axis and a Y axis and actually a Z axis too. Um, and with PCOS, just for reference, it's androgen dominance and insulin resistance. Whereas with PFS, it's kind of uh, androgen, um, I don't want to say indominance, but uh, androgen um, insensitivity and genitourinary symptoms, and then also neurosteroidal symptoms or CNS symptoms. So CNS symptoms would have to do with the balance between fight or flight and rest and digest. Those are called sympathetic nervous systems and parasympathetic nervous systems. You have your sympathetic ganglion, for example, stellate ganglion. So some people get stellate ganglion blocks with good result. Um, and then you also have your parasympathetic nerve. A vagus nerve is actually a cranial nerve, 10 that comes down and innervates your heart, um, has to do with heart rate. It's called parasympathetic tone and also innervates your gut, oddly enough. So there's a one tie in for gut brain axis with a direct line in between it. Um, not that we need more um, information to support gut brain, but that is certainly like part of the CNS. A lot of people talk about neurosteroids. It's not just DHP and THP. Yes, there's a uh, lymphatically absorbed allopregnanolone in development, but we also know that just pregnenolone supplementation or progesterone supplementation will lead to 5-alpha reduction, especially when it goes through first pass and then cross the blood-brain barrier. So you're obviously um, looking at those molecules as well. And then as far as the genitourinary system, there's a lot of different things that we can look at, but there's actually pretty good data on people who have gone through ADT or androgen deprivation therapy. Not the exact same thing, but you can definitely make some corollaries. It's nice that there's a huge um, like pool of evidence to look at. And I don't know if many experts are looking at this, but we are certainly looking at it a lot. And optimizing your testosterone and DHT, like we often talk about, can help with the uh, sensitivity and that type 2 that is in the genitourinary skin specifically, and we will dive into this um, consistently over time, but that's de definitely something to consider. PRP shots, um, people are familiar with like vaginal rejuvenation. There is a male version of that that can be useful as well. Um, that, that probably doesn't even cover half of it, but basically we do an individualized approach. 
I could do with everything else. And that's a bunch of various things that um, we've had mixed success with. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly no like, you know, promise of a cure if someone presents with something like this. And the other thing is, you know, hormone optimization and looking at this starts with the blood work. So it's really a, a diagnosis of exclusion. You know, some people, you know, they may think that they have PFS and they actually just have a profound hypothyroid state that's leading yep. to a hypogonadal state. And then you just sort of undo the cascade there. And then the you know, PFS in that case is cured. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are cases where, you know, no one wants to hear, well, get your labs checked and this or like, everything's normal. Just tell me the mechanism. Tell me the stuff. Yep. And, you know, HCG is something that can be used there. And interestingly, HCG seems to affect the type 2 5-alpha reductase. You know, we came across a great gem of a paper recently, mm -hmm. um, but not in the direction that you might think. So um, we'll certainly have perhaps a full podcast on that at some point as well. All right. And then I think that's basically the same question there. But would artificially sweetened beverages also have an effect on insulin sensitivity? Uh, I presume this is in comparison to like a sugar sweetened beverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it depends on the artificial sweetener. Uh, each one has a different caloric intake. I can't, I'm not sure if we've published our podcast on carbs and or artificial sweeteners yet. But um, anyway, the answer is it depends. And uh, if you consume it with a meal, then it is um, more likely to contribute to a higher um, release of insulin. But regardless of the artificial sweetener, it's going to have a less of a response as just consuming sugar. Yeah. And there are some interesting anecdotes out there. People, you know, drinking a, a Diet Coke, for example, and then they are wearing a CGM. And they're like, this is making my glucose behave slightly abnormally you know, throughout the day. So there is some data there on the gut microbiome. And perhaps mm. for some people, it has a you know, zero clinical effect. But for some people, there may be a small clinical effect there. Mm -hmm. If there's someone that's consuming, you know, let's say 20 Coke zeros a day, it's probably having a clinically significant effect. You mean side effects might be dose dependent? Side effects are dose dependent. <laughs> dose makes the poison. All right. And here's a question about our Norwood rating score from our hair loss podcast. <laughs> Why give finasteride a Norwood one and dutasteride a mature hairline if dutasteride is better tolerated and more effective? Norwood one. I don't remember this specific spot of the podcast, but... Um, and mature hairline. I don't remember what we meant by mature hairline. I think mature hairline is where the hair loss has stopped, right? So some people, okay. they just have a sort of slight recession and then they get a mature hairline and they are handsome. Whereas if you're at a Norwood uh, one, then it's quite likely that without mm -hmm. intervention, you'll progress to Norwood two, three, four, et cetera. So I think that was the line of thinking there. Uh, Dutasteride, I mean, you may not get a Norwood zero or a Norwood yeah. negative one, but we give it a mature hairline. It's rating. as perfect as a score as you can get. So the question is talking about dutasteride scalp <laughs> injections. Um, the studies seem to suggest that it may not go systemic. We've certainly seen that data in the blood work. Um, but how can it stay local given that the scalp is vascularized? And I can understand you know, where someone would come up with this sort of question. Yep. So a few notes, the doses for mesotherapy, when you look at the clinical literature, is significantly different than topical dutasteride. So topical dutasteride, it's not uncommon to have relatively high doses. And by the way, it does go systemic just a bit. But the, I guess the answer to the deeper question, which is 
where does the dutasteride go when it is when it is injected? And I did a full Instagram post about this recently about the uh, pharmacokinetic data um, of dutasteride, and at very low doses, it's metabolized extremely quickly. Kind of like with Tylenol or even aspirin, you have very fast metabolism. And then once you're over a certain threshold, then it's metabolized very quickly. Um, and I think that like uh, inflection point or whatnot for dutasteride is around 0.1 milligram per day orally. So often they use 0.05, I believe, mg per mil, and then a certain amount to where you are not going to be above that um, general threshold. Um, so dutasteride mesotherapy, dutasteride topical, both will go systemic, but uh, if it is dosed correctly in a clinically insignificant amount to where DHT, like a serum DHT will not be affected. Yeah, it, it goes back to sort of the dose delivery again. So uh, it's not like we're implanting half milligram pellets of dutasteride mm -hmm. in somebody's mm -hmm. scalp that are going to be released systemically. Yep. But a very small amount may be enough to stay more local there and have a very small or insignificant mm -hmm. clinical effect. It's like one of those games where um, you have a, you know, you're shooting the zombies as they're trying to get to your fort. Each cell is its own fort. In the scalp, you're just injecting the zombies right in that fort. Some of them will escape and go throughout the system, but basically your body has enough time to, um, to eliminate them before they get to other cells. All right. Now someone says, is there a natural solution against alopecia? Um, I guess that's the first um, part of this question. And then we can you know, do part two as a, a separate answer. Yeah, um, not something that's particularly efficacious. Is botulinum toxin natural? That might be natural. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on like a more natural approach as opposed to affecting systemic sex hormones. So if someone's hair loss is due to an iron deficiency mm -hmm. and then you solve that iron deficiency, that's, as, that's about as close to that's natural. natural as you will get. Um, it, it goes into hormones again, but the same thing with uh, thyroid condition. If yeah. you're correcting a thyroid condition, um, that is not going to affect the systemic sex hormones in a negative sense usually, mm -hmm. as long as it's not overdosed where you're pushing up SHBG. There's always a caveat, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so there are some natural solutions. We chatted about sal palmetto. Um, I've talked about caffeine before. That was very popular, but um, again, relatively weak. This is something worth adding in if you're already on a topical, like the um, shampoo that Derek formulated. But they're um, the most natural solutions for run-of-the-mill androgenic alopecia, um, not going to be particularly powerful. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Uh, now someone says, is it true that for someone past 40, the speed of alopecia is slower? Um, the rates can vary significantly. A lot of times you'll see stepwise progression. The inflammation of the scalp, so if you do a scalp biopsy in areas with androgenic alopecia, you see that there is more significantly more inflammation. It looks kind of like an autoimmune reaction. And um, you can definitely get to like a, a critical mass of that inflammation and then have a quick progression. And then you can also have periods of miniaturization and then something like a viral telogen effluvium. Let's say you get a virus and you have a huge shed and then um, it doesn't come back, but it's not necessarily because the telogen effluvium, it's because there's been miniaturization and um, 
do secondary to the binding of the androgen receptor for 20 years. And it just happened to have a quick progression at that time. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, differences in this population. So there's people where they will thin and thin and thin, and then they stabilize at a certain level. Probably has to do with the distribution of the hair follicles and whether those hair follicles are sensitive to DHT and androgens or not, mm -hmm. or whether they're enough able to sort of control that inflammation as much on their own. And that comes down to you know, scalp tension and someone's antioxidant status and all these sorts of factors. Um, and then you also do, like you said, sometimes it is like on average, if you look at it, I think it's about 10% per decade, maybe slightly more now with the lower levels of sex hormone binding globulin. Mm -hmm. Used to be a good rule of thumb to say by age 50, about 50% of men will have some visible hair loss. Yep. All right. And then someone said, what is a topical dutasteride protocol? 0.25% to the affected area, two to three times a week. Leave on at least 10 minutes. Um, if you don't want it to go systemic, probably don't microneedle at the same time. Yep. <laughs> For most things, definitely don't want to apply it within 24 hours of microneedling. And even with dutasteride being applied, you know, a few times per week, um, there is one study to pull from where patients admittedly weren't great at applying their topicals, which um, in part maybe why oral minoxidil seems to be more effective than a yep. topical. Um, even though they were just using this, you know, proprietary blend that had some dutasteride in it three to four times a week, mm -hmm. it appeared to have some beneficial effects. And I think that was on a shorter time frame, maybe three months or six months, something of that nature. Yep. Can heavy alcohol use in early life accelerate the onset of menopause? Hmm. It is an interesting idea, uh, presumably due to the excess aromatase activity, more alcohol use, more aromatization of testosterone to estrogen. Um, but that being said, I don't think it would be a major factor. Heavy alcohol use, heavy alcohol use for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years is going to lead to a lot of deleterious sequela. Um, it's going to have a lot of other, uh, likely lead to other comorbid conditions that will then potentially lead to early menopause. But directly, it's hard to say, even if that just excess estrogen signaling would have a huge effect. Yeah, I, I think with alcohol, you're going to see a speed of aging that is faster in a lot of different organ systems, whether the, ovari the ovaries are one of those or not, I don't know is fully elucidated. But if you have someone who's had a period of heavy alcohol use, you know, or is currently using heavy levels of alcohol, that's certainly not going to have a positive effect on fertility or ovarian function. So probably there is a small effect there, I would guess. Um, but the perimenopausal and menopausal window is probably not at the top priority list for someone who is using lots of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Someone says, is it helpful for someone with PCOS or endometriosis to take inositol while taking an oral contraceptive? Yes. Um, again, inositol is dechiroinositol and myoinositol. Inside the cell, dechiroinositol downregulates certain functions that are secondary to androgen receptor binding. So it's like an intracellularly, it can be an anti-androgen, which is great in the ovary, especially with PCOS, where you have mosaicism and excess androgen sensitivity at baseline in the ovary. But in the um, like synthesis of hormones, decarbonositol is a proandrogen. 
it can lead to the formation, the healthy formation and synthesis of androgens as well. So it's kind of a mixed antiandrogen, proandrogen. That's the decotyroinositol. Usually it's in a ratio of about 20 to 1 to 40 to 1 with myoinositol, which is an insulin sensitizer and also um, can accumulate in the central nervous system, might improve sleep. It's kind of a B vitamin, B8-ish. Um, but uh, things like uh, lithium, whether it's a supplement or the medication version of it, depletes inositol levels in the brain. So there's a lot of benefits to both varieties of inositol, even if you're on an oral contraceptive. All right. And someone is asking about oral minoxidil, uh, its effects on skin and edema. Yeah. So oral minoxidil goes through first pass in the liver. The sulfotransferase enzyme is expressed at high levels hepatically. So you have a lot of minoxidil sulfate, which is kind of the active form. So more efficacy, potentially more side effects as well. Yes, topical minoxidil goes systemic. And um, there are studies that kind of equate, um, you know, if you're doing 5% topical twice a day, this is roughly equal to X milligrams, one to two milligrams of oral. Um, so and there can be side effects both ways. It can increase your prolactin. Yes, it can cause edema. It's not unusual to see um, like fluid retention and whatnot, but not always just due to minoxidil. Sometimes there's a second or like kind of like third contributing cause too. And it can also um, affect blood pressure, usually lowering blood pressure. So uh, I think that's a pretty good summary of uh, oral minoxidil. Yeah. And if you are drinking minoxidil from over the counter, I advise you not yeah. to do that. Uh, as I posted here somewhat recently, people certainly have experienced these sorts of side effects from doing that. Yep. All right. And someone here is asking about if you're taking oral minoxidil, is microneedling going to give you any extra benefit? Um, as they said, they assume that the microneedling only enhances minoxidil's efficacy when you're using minoxidil topically. It does for oral minoxidil as well. It goes systemic and will also go to the hair follicle. Yeah, and microneedling just by itself also has positive effects on the scalp skin, um, recruiting more growth factors, more blood flow. And we see this in studies where they compare just microneedling to microneedling plus tretinoin. Mm -hmm. uh, you see improvement in hair growth in both cases. So uh, it's not necessarily like only do this if you're using topical minoxidil. It can be used as an adjunct, um, even if you're not applying something topically. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.